Hi everybody, my name is Pat Hogarty and welcome back to California Real Estate Practice, Real Estate 310. Today happens to be, I believe, our 16th show or show 16. And today we're going to be talking about something called real estate finance. And uh, uh, this is basically in your book. The fifth edition is going to be in chapter, I believe it's chapter 8. So it's going to be, we're talking about real estate finance. One of the things that I want to mention to you before we, uh, as we start this discussion, is the fact that real estate finance is probably one of the most important topics. Well, there's a lot of topics that are important in real estate, but this is one of the most important topics. And the reason why it's an important topic is because of the fact that in most cases, unless somebody is moving from an out-of-town area in which they've sold a house that they've made a heck of a lot of money on and have a lot of money to transfer uh, and put down on a place or pay cash for it, Usually, uh, that's a, an unusual circumstance. Usually, most of the time, what happens is people do not have that three, four, five hundred thousand dollars in their back pocket to be able to buy a home. So, one of the things that they have to do is they have to be able to get real estate financing or finance it. And so, it's very, very important that you, as a, a real estate agent, understand what that process is, how you go about helping your clients get ready for and prepare to obtain a loan, and then what kinds of loan programs are there that are available that may meet your client's needs. One of the things that I do want to mention to you also is the fact that it's very, very important that you establish some relationships with people that are in the lending industry, mortgage bankers, mortgage brokers, uh, lenders at banks, so that these people can be able to help you get your clients qualified to buy a property and also, while at the same time, uh, keeping you abreast of what the new financing programs happen to be. It becomes very, very important that you can do that. So what we're going to do is we're going to start over here. I'm going to be moving over to my document camera. And again, this is just starting out here on Chapter 8, Finance, How to Choose the Right Loan. And this becomes very important, by the way, uh, that clients, whenever they purchase a piece of property, get the right kind of loan to meet their needs. Last week, we just had a um, lady come in, uh, Michelle Dillingham, who writes a column for the Sacramento Bee on uh, finance. And one of the things that she really stressed to our internship class about is how important it is to put people in the right kind of a loan. In other words, for example, a lot of times people will actually end up borrowing money on an interest-only loan or on an adjustable rate loan, and somebody will put them into that particular product, like an adjustable rate loan that's going to adjust after the first year or the first three years or the first five years. I'm here to tell you that those kinds of programs are set up for those people that feel that at the time that they get the loan, they typically cannot afford a fixed-rate loan, but they can afford an adjustable rate loan, and they see, your clients see, that in the next three to five years, their income is going to go up, either through promotions, new job changes, through education, or whatever, but their income is going to go up to hopefully pay for whatever that increase is in the interest rate. What you don't want to do is be putting people in homes, allowing them or helping them, getting in where they can barely qualify, only to find out after a year or so their, their payments go up to the point that they cannot afford it and they end up losing the house to foreclosure. That's not going to be a happy client. It's not a good way to be, build a real estate practice. So you really want to make sure that you're, you, you, you're putting your clients or helping your clients 
to get into the appropriate type of a loan. And it may mean that maybe they can't afford, you know, for, uh, from a risk standpoint, they can't really afford to buy the bigger house that they want right now because if they do and the interest rates would go up or change, they would end up losing it because they couldn't make the monthly payments. So hel you helping them choose the right loan is very important. Going back to uh, our old document camera right here, uh, one of the things that they start off right off the bat is uh, they do, do talk about the fact that, you know, in most cases here, buying and selling real estate would grind to a halt if we did not have mortgage funds. That is such a true statement. In fact, today as I speak, what's happened in the last couple of years is that the interest rates were very low. People could qualify, just about anybody could qualify to buy a piece of property. The interest rates now have been going up. The Federal Reserve has raised the interest rates uh, that they charge member banks, uh, as I speak, about 14 times. They're probably going to go about 15 times now. What ends up happening is the cost of money goes up. Therefore, less people can afford to buy homes, and those homes are now sitting on the market for a longer period of time. So f that's a good indicator that real estate financing is a key to making this whole thing we call the real estate industry work. If we don't have financing that people can afford, the whole, the whole business, the whole industry will come to a screeching halt. Next thing that I, the book wants to emphasize to you is, is the fact that in California, we use something called trust deeds, not mortgages. And let me mention what this is. If you talk about borrowing money to buy a house, you talk about the client getting a mortgage. If they pay the house off, you talk about the fact that they pay the mortgage off. In fact, when you go to get a loan and you go to somebody like Viatech or Countrywide, you're going to be talking about going to the mortgage broker or mortgage banker. You go to the bank, you're going to be talking about getting a mortgage. It's mortgage, mortgage, mortgage. But in California, we don't use mortgages, by and large. We use things called notes, which are uh, a note is nothing more than if I was going to borrow some money from somebody and saying, I, Pat Hogarty, hereby promise that I'll pay back Jeff Smith uh, an amount of $100 that I may have borrowed for something at a certain interest rate, and it's all going to be paid off within the next two years. It's nothing more than a note. But to secure that note, I have this thing called the deed of trust. This is the document that's recorded at the county recorder's office that secures that note with the property. Okay? So what I'm going to do is flip this page over, and I think um, go to uh, just show you this uh, next one here, which is this. This is how the deed of trust works, okay? The parties to the deed of trust. You have three parties to a deed of trust. And this, by the way, is a statutory procedure, statutory law as far as anything to do with foreclosure. Statutory basically means that instead of going to court, if we have somebody that's not making payments, what we basically do is we're able to f go in, open up the book, look at the law, and follow the law, the step-by-step -step procedure in the law. Now, what I'm going to do is just show you here what these are. I'll talk about them, and then I'm sure you can read them as you go along. In the deed of trust, we have basically we have three parties. We have somebody that we call the borrower. That's you or I that goes down to the bank that borrows the money. That person also has another name that's on these documents called the trustor. Okay? In fact, if you really think about it, not to confuse you, but we as individuals are called all sorts of different names depending upon whoever we're dealing with. You know, if we're going to the doctor, we're a patient. If we go to the attorney, we're a client. Okay, if we go to the store, Raleigh's, to buy something to eat, we're called the customer. Okay, so we always have a different name. So this is nothing more than just being called a different name. 
but you're the borrower and it's called you're the trustor. The lender, who would be the bank, okay, they are also called the beneficiary in this document. So this people here are the ones that have turned around and lent the money to the borrower. The third party that we have here is somebody called the trustee. And this is kind of works like this. Uh, what it amounts to is, is it's just like when you get a loan on a car. Uh, what ends up happening is you go down to the bank, you go to Cal Worthington Chevrolet, you go to a Dodge place, a Ford, General Motors, you go up to uh, John L. Sullivan in, uh, in Roseville to buy a car, buy a brand new Corvette, which is a re you know, really nice car, you know, or you even go out to buy a motorcycle like a Harley. And you walk in and you say, my goodness, I really love that motorcycle. And the guy tells you what the price is, and he says, oh, by the way, that's going to run $24,000. And you pull your wallet out, and you go, I'm a little bit shy. You know, I've only got two bucks on me. What am I going to do? And they'll say, don't worry about it. We're going to go ahead, and we'll, we'll finance it for you. What ends up happening is, is that you sign a bunch of documents in which you promise to pay some money back. And then what ends up happening is, is the title to the, to the bike or to the car, and that's called the pink slip. And the people that hold that pink slip while you owe the money is the lending institution. And in reality, by that, them holding that pink slip gives them the, the authorization that in the event that you don't make your payment on your brand new Harley motorcycle after six months or a year, that they can go out and hire somebody called the repo man, or repo, we, we have to say, repo person, okay? And that person will go out there in the middle of the night and find your motorcycle or find your car, whatever it happens to be, and they'll repossess it because the collateral for the loan was the car or the motorcycle. Okay, same thing with a house. When you borrow money against a house, the collateral for the loan is the house. Well, the same thing like we have the pink slip, if you think about it, when you pay it off, if you pay off a car or a motorcycle, one of the things that you're going to get in a few weeks is something called the pink slip. That'll give you the title to the, pro to the, to the, to the car or the motorcycle, which then gives you the authority then, because now it's paid off, you can turn around and sell it, you endorse the bank of the pink slip and send it off or give it to the person they registered the car. In the case of real estate, what you do is you have this third party called a trustee. In a lot of cases, if the title insurance company is creating the initial deed of trust, they will probably have language in there and say, hey, you know, we'll, we'll go ahead and be the trustee on this. If it's a lender, the lender may decide they want to be the trustee. But essentially what these are, these are the people that kind of sit around and really don't do a heck of a lot of anything. You know, they don't do much of anything. They just kind of sit around, drink coffee, and eat donuts, ice cream once in a while until all of a sudden you, the borrower, does not make your payments. When you don't make your payments and the lender finally says, you know what, I have called the people up. I've sent them letters. I've got them on the phone. They've made all sorts of promises to me. You know what, they're not making their payments. What we need to do is start the foreclosure process. What happens is the lender contacts the title or contacts the trustee and says, listen, we've tried everything in our power. We need to start the foreclosure process. And it's the trustee that does the foreclosure. And from start to finish, as a rule of thumb, rule of thumb, doesn't mean that uh, it might be off a day or two one way or the other, but as a rule of thumb, it takes roughly about 120 days, roughly, rough estimate. And during that period of time, there's periods of time in which the person that owes the money, for example, can come back and pay off all the late fees, all the, the interest they haven't paid, and reinstate the loan and not have a problem. Okay? In fact, some people may, a lot of times people, you, a lot of times are not making payments on loans because of some circumstances beyond their control. As an example, 
Somebody may have, be a very hard worker. They work two or three jobs. They're very industrious, and all of a sudden something happens. They get in a car accident. They get hurt. They become sick. They lose their ability to make their monthly payment. And they may be off work for, what, maybe a month or two months, or they may be permanently disabled. Well, lo those people that are off for a month or two, you know, they have to make a decision. They maybe don't have the income. They don't have disability insurance. So what they're doing is to say, you know what, it's the difference between making the house payment and putting food on the table for my family, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to buy the food for my family so they defer the house payment. Maybe by the end of the second month they can go back to work and now they can start resuming payments again. So it's not anybody's necessarily a deadbeat that that happens to. It's just something to control beyond. The other thing is, and I was watching TV the other night, is the fact that a lot of people that are, are friends of ours that do not have medical insurance, in other words, they get hurt and go to the hospital and end up in the hospital but don't have insurance to make those medical payments, end up being forced, if you will, by the hospital to make those payments. And there was a big piece that was done on one of those shows, like a 60 Minutes or a Dateline or something like that, and come to find out that, first of all, the hospitals which they don't want to hear, charge more to those people that don't have enough money for the same, in other words, the appendectomy that you go get that maybe the insurance company pays 5000 If you're a private individual, you may pay 20000 for. This is just, I'm just quoting what was on TV. And those poor people don't have insurance. And now they're faced with not only losing their stream of income because they were hurt, but now they're also faced with the fact of this bill that's four times what they normally would be. Those are the people that a lot of times they say something like, 40, uh, I think it's somewhere between 40 and 50 percent of the people that end up in some form of bankruptcy are in there, pressed in there because of some medical problem that they've had, because they have this huge medical bill that they can't handle, so that they use the bankruptcy laws to protect them, because they just can't get blood out of a stone. So the point is, if that happens, people may very well be able to come back and reinstate the loan. But there will be a period of time when everything ends, and then the, the property will be sold, and it typically will be sold at a public auction, meaning that it'll be advertised. People will stand there, say, hi, my name is Pat. I have a property for sale from Bank of America. The amount is the bank will always put on whatever they feel is there, uh, eno enough to cover what is owed against them. People will be standing around in the crowd, and it'll be the old auction process. I have, a, I have an offer for 105000 110, 115. Whoever was the one that buys it at the top level is the one that gets the property. That those proceeds are used to pay off the loan and any late fees. And I think I have a question from the gentleman in the back on the right side. Yeah, now will that um, affect their credit score? Yes, it will affect their credit score. Okay, and also do, when, when they want you to reinstate the loan, do they have to pay? They you have to push the button down again. When they want to re reinstate the loan, do they have to pay? Say they haven't paid for four months. Do they have to pay them four months in full, or? Yeah, they have they to do. Work? Yeah, the question is, is when they have to pay them back. What they have to do is walk in, and they have to they have to pay everything back to them. They have to go back in and say, here's the late payments, here is the uh, penalty payments, here's all the payments to bring the loan up to standard again, to bring it to put me back where I was three or four months ago. Okay, that's what they want to do. Okay, that's what that that's what the lender. Now, if they fall within that period of time, they can do that. There is a period of time d during this foreclosure process where you've allowed to do that, and then you, when you get near the end of it, I think it's something like the last five days. I always have to look it up where you lose those rights. And the reason why is because all of a sudden now they've given you the period of time to do that. You haven't done it, so now what they're doing is they're actually going to start the actual foreclosure. In other words, they're going to go down to the courthouse. They're going to and do the whole process. 
and somewhere along the line they got to drop the hammer and say that's the end of it okay so the big thing is if you run into any kind of an issue like this the best thing for you to do for anybody to do is to try as hard as you can to not duck the people that you owe the money to try to communicate with them explain what the situation is try to find some way to mit mitigate the circumstances okay the problem with some people I try to duck it don't answer the telephone don't return phone calls don't contact the lenders those people are people that usually get the lenders frustrated because the lender I'm not saying that they will but they may be able to work something out with you so at least you want to ask that question you know listen here's what's happened I got hurt on the job I'm a bricklayer my back got hurt I can't lift the bricks up for a while I'm gonna to have to take less of you know uh, I'm gonna go into training but I, I I'm making less money than I was is there something we can work out something and they may say well I'm sorry no we can't we're gonna sell the place now what you can do at that point in time is you can also in order to reduce the amount of costs and help the lender out is that you could also find out and say to them listen it looks to me like there's no way that I'm ever gonna be able to take that house over again I was the primary breadwinner or my company went out of business or you know something happened there's absolutely no way I can do that I'm having to move in with my son my daughter my aunt my uncle my mother my father no way what you could do is go back to them and say listen how about is there any way that we can protect my side and your side cut down your frustration cut down my frustration and how would you handle something called the deed in lieu of foreclosure and how would you that affect my credit rating now that's something you have to report whenever you get a loan that you have given a deed in lieu of foreclosure but the idea is is that you say why put the lender through this why put me through this why don't I just turn around and sign the property back over to you and see what the lender will say they may say forget about it <laughs> we're gonna go ahead and we'll go through the floor but you want to communicate that's the key thing okay and it's usually because somebody gets sick hurt somebody died didn't lost income that's usually because most people don't want to get thrown out of the house they don't they really don't anyway so this has to do with how that process works okay so it's the trustee that actually conducts the trustee sale right okay the cost of getting money now they only break down and run around or not run around but give you some idea of some of the costs that you're going to pay when you get when you get uh, when you borrow money the first thing is and by the way borrowing money against houses is not cheap okay so anytime you see somebody says oh by the way get a loan against your house and you're gonna save you know and all the money you're gonna pay is tax deductible find out what the costs are really going to be okay because real estate loans are not cheap and refinancings are not cheap some of the things that you're gonna have to consider though in cost and borrowing money is the interest rate that's one thing you're going to have to pay interest okay and interest can go the whole extreme Nowadays, they have all different sorts of programs for people that could take the next, you know, five sessions for me to explain all those programs. But suffice it to say that on one end of the extreme, you can have where all you pay is interest on the loan. That's all you pay. In other words, you borrow the money, you borrow $100,000, you pay, I don't know, 7% interest on the, on the loan, okay, which works out to be $700. Is that $700, 7%? No, that would be $7,000 a year you know that's your interest that's what you pay okay that's interest so one of the things that you look at when you borrow money is, is what is it going to cost me to pay back this loan okay that's interest you're also going to have things called loan origination fees and you're going to find out between lender to lender to lender those fees are going to be all sorts of different types of names 
Origination fees could be a fee just to get the application process started. Uh, you could also, some lenders will throw in there things like warehousing the loan, which means just holding on to the funds for a period of time until they're able to sell it off. It could be servicing. It could be, because uh, some of the fees you're going to have when you get a loan, the standard loan is you're going to have a loan origination fee of some sort. It's not going to be for free. They're going to charge you something for filling out that application. You're most likely going to have a credit fee, some kind of a credit check they're going to do on you. You're going to have to probably produce things like documents to show how much money you make in most cases. If you want to get the lower rate, now that's one thing that a lot of people will turn around and say, no, Pat, you're full of baloney. I just go down there and tell them how much money I make and they lend me the money. Well, you're going on something called stated income. And that is really set aside for people that have a difficult time of proving where their money is coming from, such as people that are self-employed. You know, like, hey, I go up and I, I make my money cutting trees down in the summertime and I, and I put chains on cars when it snows out up, uh, up at the pass. You know, that kind of a person. You know, that's difficult for them to prove. Well, they get it from tips. So they put sta- but guess what? There's no free lunch. You're going to pay a higher interest rate for, if you have stated income. Okay? Um, you're going to have things like appraisals. You know, they're not going to lend you the money without knowing what the, if the house even exists. Part of the, the process of getting an appraisal is for the person to actually just say, hey, there's a house there. Because guess what? Over the years, have people borrowed money on, on houses that didn't exist, that were just a space, land? Yes. So you're going to have that. You're going to have escrow fees, title fees. Um, you're going to have a documentary fees to prepare the documents for recording. In other words, somebody's going to get paid to turn around and prepare the grant deed, the deed of trust. Uh, if it's a deed of trust for a loan, you're going to have those fees. So you're going to have a lot of fees. You're going to have lots and lots and lots of fees that you're going to have to pay in order to get the loan. Okay? Anytime you get a loan, there's one estimate that a lender has to give you. It's called a best faith, good faith estimate. Good faith estimate. Notice it says the word estimate, and it's in their good faith. What it is is that they have to be able to tell you if you're going to borrow this amount of money at this interest rate, these are the fees that we estimate that you are going to be charged. Okay, very important that you look at that and make sure you understand that. I'm also here to tell you that if you borrow money together, like a husband and wife, and usually one or the other wants to look at this kind of information and the other one doesn't, it's very important that both of you look at it and understand what's going on. Because, if, for example, if the wife happens to be the one that has the time to go down to the bank during the day because she works the swing shift, and the husband works the day shift, and she gets all the information. Then all of a sudden you go through this whole process, and the husband finally sits down and looks at the loan at, at the day that you're ready to sign the paperwork and says, what's this fee? What's that? Why are you charging all that? That's getting too late. <laughs> you know, you need to know what those fees are up ahead of time. You know? And if they don't know a fee, they usually feel they've been cheated or ta- you know, taken advantage of. That's why it's important for everybody to look at that good faith estimate and understand what it is. Another thing that you're going to be charged is points. Points are prepaid interest. What it amounts to is the fact that the lender needs to get a certain amount of return on their money. And what they will do is they will charge you a point, a fee, an interest rate up ahead of time. And the concept behind this is that usually if you, the more points you pay, the lower the interest rate. Okay? So, for example, it's not uncommon for you to take, for example, look at a loan Say it's a 30-year loan, 30, let's just say it's a fixed-year, 30-year loan, fixed interest rate, and they may say, okay, the interest rate on that loan is 7%, okay? 
but they may turn around and say, oh, by the way, if you want to reduce the monthly payment, then you can pay points. And every point is 1% of the loan. So if it's a $100,000 loan, it means $1,000 paid in points. If it's two, two points, it's 2,000. Three points, 3,000. The concept is, is every time you do that, you reduce the monthly payment. And, so, and what really helps people and benefits people is if they're going to stay in the home for a long period of time. You know, if you have full intention of buying that house and staying there until they actually carry you out on a stretcher, you know, when you die, then, that, then you probably are going to want to pay the points because it's going to take you quite a long time to get it back. If you're going to be a, take it, stay in the house for two, three, four, five years, it may be worth it not to pay those points. You may say, listen, I'll pay the regular interest rate because when I do the math, in order for me to recover those additional fees that I would pay up front, I'd have to stay here for seven years. And I'm not staying for seven. I'm only going to stay for five. So it's another one of those calculations you want to look at. Uh, so discount points is another thing that you want to take a look at. All right. Um, the next thing that you want to do, and this is a whole subject within itself, could take forever to explain, is something called APR. APR means annual percentage rate. Whenever you see a loan quoted on, you know, if you're driving home tonight and you see one of those billboards for Diatech or, or Bank of America or anything else that's li lit up, they'll give you normally an example. They'll say fixed rate loan and they'll quote you an interest rate is uh, six and a quarter. And then they'll give you another number and they'll say that the annual percentage rate is six and a half. And you go, well, what in the world is this six and a quarter and six and a half? I don't understand it. The concept is, is the six and a quarter percent is what the interest rate is used to calculate what your monthly payments are going to be. Your annual percentage rate is the rate that's established that includes all the costs that were necessary for you to get the loan. So the APR, the concept of the APR is that you have an independent, theoretically, an independent number that you can use to compare one loan against the other or one lender against the other to look for the lowest APR. And the reason why you want to do that is because when you go to a lender, a lender may say, for example, listen, you know, I have a 30-year fixed rate loan. The interest rates are six and a half with two points. You go to some other lender, he says, I have a 30-year fixed rate loan, six and a half interest rate, one point. And you go, wait a minute, you know, how, you know, you're all quoting to me all these different factors and numbers. How do I compare the two of you guys together? How do I at least be able to compare them to say, this guy is cheaper than this guy, so let me take a look at this guy. How do I do that? You look at the APR, okay? So that's what this is. And it says right here, it says, the annual percentage rate represents the relationship between the total of the finance charges, interest rate points, and loan fee, and that total finance expressed in a percentage. It is the actual cost of borrowing money. It must be computed to the interest rate one quarter of 1% and must be printed on the loan form more conspicuously than the rest of the printed material, okay? And then down below that, it gives you one other factor. It says, when shopping for a loan, advise your buyers to look at the APR rather than just the advertised interest rate, okay? And by the way, keep in mind when your clients are looking to borrow money, it's not an easy thing. They're going to hopefully be looking to you for guidance because, remember, people are going to do what? They're going to buy a house, live in the house probably somewhere, but depending upon where they are in their lifespan, you know, whether they're brand-new buyers, intermediate, or they're getting close to retirement or have retired, 
they're probably going to live in there for maybe three to five years, somewhere in that, unless they're the kind that buys a house and stays in it forever, and they buy a house that's 1,000 square feet, and buy, like my brother does, and by the time they get done, it's 4,000 square feet with all the additions for the kids. But the point is, what you want to realize is that your clients are not in this business every day of shopping for a loan. And what they're going to do is depend upon you because while it used to be where fixed rate, you know, all we ever had was a fixed rate loan, amortized for 30 years, and that was the end of it. Now we have all of these other kinds of loans and loan programs that are available for everybody. So that's why it's going to help you to help them understand what's going on. Okay, another thing that you're going to want to look at, too, is something called prepayment penalties. Prepayment penalties are typically charged on home equity type of loans, and they show their head in several different areas. Prepayment penalties, that's when you go to the bank or you go to the supermarket and you see a sign that says, listen, get a home equity loan, use the money for anything that you want to use it for, vacation, buy a car, put a new roof on the house, blah, 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 whatever it happens to be. That's what they tell you. They give you an interest rate. They give you an APR. And they say no fees, no cost, no money, no sweat. No, no, you know, it makes it sound really simple. Then you maybe look at, you get the magnifying glass out and you start reading that little print. One of the things that you're going to find out is, is that if you decide to pay that loan off or that loan requirement off, you know, if it's an equity line of credit, within a certain period of time, you're going to have a prepayment penalty. And you just need to be aware of that. If your concept is, is that I'm going to borrow some money, you know, for a period of time, you know, to fix the house up and then I'm going to sell it, you may just want to realize, you know, you may just say, you know, you may say, you just want to know that you're going to be faced with that. You may very well say, I know I'm going to have that. It's the best deal. I've already investigated everything. It's the best shot. Um, the other place that you'll see it is where you hear people will do these 80-20 loans. With the concept behind that is, is I'm going to finance 20, I'm going to finance 80% of the loan, 80% of the house. And by doing that, I'm not going to have to get any private mortgage insurance because I'm putting, the lender is only going to have to worry about, is going to have money coming from some other place. So their loan is fairly secure because they've got, you know, I'm only borrowing 80% of the value of the house for them. And then what will end up happening, this other 20% is coming from one of those home equity loans, home equity type conceptual loans. Okay, it's a second. Okay, those will usually have a prepayment penalty. And that prepayment penalty also, by the way, is normally prorated based on the number of period of time you have. So you'll find out that if you, if, you, if you borrowed the money and turned around and paid it off within the first six months, you may pay a big penalty. If you do it in the first year, you pay a little less, two years a little less, three years a little less, and then after three years, you don't pay any. Okay, so, which is one of the questions you need to ask. <coughs> The la not the last thing, but another thing that they mention here just as terms is something called an impound account, or they call it reserves. And the concept here is this. For anybody that is going to put down less than 80% or less than 20% down when they buy a house. So as an example, if I go out to buy a house and it's $100,000, and I always use $100,000 because I don't have to really do, have to work that hard at the math, although we'd be hard-pressed to find a $100,000 house. But I'm going to go buy a $100,000 house. If I say less than 20%, that means that if I put 20% down, that would be $20,000. If I put down 19,000, 18, 17, 16, all the way down to zero, that means I'm putting down less than 20%. If I put down less than 20%, that means that I have to get the money from someplace else. 
And, that, and for example, if I'm buying on an FHA, a government-backed program, or a VA program, or a private program, or whatever, what they're going to do, the lender's going to say this. They're going to say, listen, here's the deal. You're only putting a small amount of money down. Now, we understand why you're doing that, because you're just like Pat Hogarty was when he was, you know, 21 years old. He didn't have a lot of money. So, you know, you don't have a lot of money. You're going to put a small amount of money down payment. Also, in a lot of cases, you might be the first home you ever bought, so you're not used to managing and budgeting for a home. So what ends up happening is, is that the lender will say, listen, I want to make sure that the things like the income taxes are paid. I want to make sure the fire insurance is paid in case the place burns down. So here's what we're going to do. When you buy the place and you get the loan, I'm going to want a certain amount of money put aside in an account, and we're going to call that account an impound account. And usually the escrow instructions or the instructions from the lender will say something like to the effect of uh, collect one year's worth of insurance from the client and, and six months' worth of property taxes. They'll give you, the lender will give you some requirement. <clears throat> what that means is that that money is taken out of escrow. It's placed in an account. That account is in reality kind of like your account. It's maintained by your lender or by whoever services the loan. And every month when you make your payments, you're paying principal, interest, and a certain amount you're paying is for taxes and insurance. So what's ending up happening is every month this account is getting money put into it for taxes and insurance. When the taxes come due, your lender gets a bill from the county. They turn around, they pay the taxes out of that impound account. When the fire insurance or the insurance comes due, they pay the insurance out of the impound account. But because you're paying only a small monthly payment, it's easier for you to afford that than it is to have, oh, you know, turn around and say, oh, my goodness, I just found out I got a $5,000 bill in property taxes. I don't have the money available. So the, the idea is if they collect a little bit every month, it's easier for you. I'm here to tell you, even so I can afford to do it the other way, once you start setting up those impound accounts, <laughs> they're nice because what you don't have to do is worry anymore. You have one check that comes out, goes to the lender, and it's taken care of. You don't have to write checks out to the, to the insurance companies and checks out for the property taxes. It's just taken care of. Okay, so, but that's the idea of an impound account. Usually, though, we enter into it when we buy our first house. For those of us that have had houses for a number of years, what happens is we get lazy. Uh, we have other things to do. We don't want to write checks, and it's a lot easier way of making our monthly payments. Okay? Next thing they want to talk about here is the types of lenders that you're going to run into, the types, okay? And they break them down into the, they talk about three different types of financing or companies. They talk about institutional financing, non-institutional financing, and government financing, three. So you can break financing down to three different categories. The types of people that do institutional, meaning that they have a sign on the outside, you know who they are, you know, like banks. You have people like savings banks is one. Commercial banks, like, for example, Bank of America, Wells Fargo. Uh, savings banks might be somebody like uh, Washington Mutual would be another example. Life insurance companies is another one. Now, not that you borrow money from the life insurance company, but the fact is, is that life insurance companies are normally institutional lenders, but the types of loans they make are different than just single-family homes. They normally make loans for things like shopping centers, office buildings, office parks, big projects. The reason why they do that is because of the fact that when you pay your insurance premium, 
they have to invest it someplace. Insurance companies tend to be very conservative. They want to invest it in something that's a very long-term investment that they can pretty well look down the line and know what they're going to get because these insurance companies have these guys with these green shade hats that sit in the back. They're called actuaries, actuaries. And they actually can calculate statistically when people are going to die, how much money they're going to have to have available. They do all that stuff. And so they're going to be looking at where to invest money. They're looking in for big projects, big projects. So you'll see insurance companies all of a sudden, you'll see some big office building go up and find out it's, it's being financed by some insurance company. Okay? The next type is somebody called non-institutional investors or non-institutional financing. These are fall in this category. So private individuals would be one. As an example, a private individual could fall into one of two categories. If I have a house that I want to sell and I'm finding that the interest rates are extremely high and, it's, and, and buyers are finding it very difficult in order to obtain financing and I really need to sell my house, I may very well turn around and say, you know what, I've had the house on the market for three months. The interest rates are high. I need to move. I'm making double payments. Why don't I do this? I'll carry the financing. I'll be the banker. So I may have equity in the house for $50,000, and I'll say, you know what? I'll make the loan. Instead of you paying me the $50,000, what I'm going to do is I'm going to write a note, a deed of trust. It'll be a second against the house. And every month you're going to be making me payments at this interest rate uh, for the next 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, whatever it happens to be. Okay, that's one of the situations. The second situation is there are people that will be private individuals that say, you know what, I am the kind of person that likes real estate, I understand real estate, I enjoy it, I like looking at it, but I don't want to manage it. I don't want to buy apartment houses, I don't want shopping centers, I don't want to do all that stuff. I want to just lend money. Now, I might be somebody like a doctor, a lawyer, or accountant. It might be through my pension plan I'm going to do this or some way or another, and I'm going to turn around and I want to, I'm going to go out and that guy that carried that loan, that private individual, I'm going to maybe put a little ad in the paper and turn around and say, listen, I'm, I, I'm an investor and I buy those loans. <laughs> okay? And what I would do is I would buy it at a discount. So, for example, if somebody had taken back a loan and maybe had it for a couple of years and turned around and said, you know what? I need to buy a new car. It's going to take forever for this loan to get paid off. Why don't I go ahead and sell the loan? The loan was originally for $50,000. I'll sell it at a discount for $40,000 to this investor. He gives me the $40,000. I can turn around and go out and buy my car, and I'm, I'm happy. Okay? So those would, that would be the other kind of private investor you would have, private individual. Okay? And those people could be of all different kinds. They could be people that are trying to invest their own pension plan money to somebody that's some little old lady that has a lot of money that just decides I had an aunt that was like that she carried mortgages for a whole bunch of people you know that, that that's how she had her income her whole entire life after her husband died she was always people she lent the money and they paid her you know that, that's how she made a living so there are people like that the second one that you'll see is non-traditional is credit unions credit unions will typically go hot and cold on what they'll do depending upon the credit union you may go in one credit union and find out, hey, they'll make first loans. Another one won't make first loans. Some will do equity line of credit. Some will make pool loans. So it depends. So we call them non-institutional lenders because they're not necessarily always doing the same thing. Uh, another thing that we have is something called investment trusts or real estate investment trusts. Typically what they are is they're organized a lot like a, like a mutual fund is. What they are is they're people that get together 
that would really like to own something like a shopping center or an office building, but they don't have enough money. And so what they do is they pool their money together with other investors. The company or the organization itself is run by professional managers. Those professional managers are always going out and looking for things like apartment houses and shopping centers or whatever, office buildings. And then you put in your money just like you do a mutual fund. Maybe you're putting in 50 or or $100 a month. Okay, and all that money together ends up being a big pot of money and then this, the professional managers go out and acquire the property. And you can have two different types of, on one hand you can have a, a real estate investment trust that will do things like invest in just property. So hard assets like real, like office buildings, shopping centers. You can have another one on the other extreme that won't invest in that. They'll invest in mortgages. Okay, they're, in other words, they're a money lender. Or you can have what we call a hybrid, where they invest some of their money in office buildings and shopping centers and some of it in mortgages, okay, called a hybrid. Uh, mortgage companies is another one. Mortgage companies, again, uh, that's kind of a broad topic, but basically what it means is that mortgage companies would be people that would maybe, you know, like, for example, if I wanted to get into the business of putting together people that wanted to sell their loans with people that wanted to buy those loans, I could enter in and be the middle person. I could be the one that runs the ad in the paper and says, looking to buy mortgages. And at the same time, I could be sending letters out and, and announcements out to people that I think would might be investors. And what I would do is I'd be the person that would be putting those packages together, okay, and correct, collecting a commission for that. So that would be another example. You can also have uh, pension plans. Uh, some of our pension plans, like uh, CalSTRS and PERS, are some of the larger. Uh... Now, in the case of STRS, or at least in CalPERS state, and I think Cal, uh, both CalSTRS, which is California State Teachers Retirement System, and PERS, which is the, I uh, cannot remember what PERS stands for, but it's any, anyway, it's the uh, retirement system for the state of California. Uh, some of those programs will also not only buy large, you know, lend out huge amounts of money or buy big projects, but they'll also have programs available for people that are employees. In fact, that lady that I was mentioning that was our, our guest at the internship program, she wrote an article in the Sacramento Bee probably about three or four weeks ago explaining the program, I think it was for CalSTRS and maybe for PERS, but it was how you as an individual, if you worked for the state or you worked, you were a teacher, how you could go to them and borrow money and what the process was. So they may very well be, and they're not all, you have certain requirements, like you have to be working for the state or be a state teacher. It's not anybody can walk in and get these loans. It has to be certain people that fit those needs, okay? So anyway, another, so that pension plans and then land contracts. Land contracts is something that is a different kind of a thing. The place where you see land contracts used uh, predominantly as a consumer is with CalVet loans, California Veterans Administration, not the VA, but CalVet. And what CalVet does is CalVet raises its money by putting out a bond issue that we as um, taxpayers vote on. Where you go to the ballot box and you'll see uh, some sort of a statement like, say, uh, bond issue, no financial impact to you, just authorization to sell bonds to the public to raise funds for the California Veterans Program. Uh, a veterans uh, home loan program. And what happens is, is that those bonds are sold, they're bought by investors, and when I say investors, I'm talking about they're bought by maybe, you know, pension plans, they're bought by individuals, they're bought by maybe even countries, who knows, but they're investors. 
That money comes in and it's used for two purposes. One purpose is to administratively run CalVet, in other words, to pay the salaries of the people that work there. And the second one is just to lend money to the veterans. When the veteran, when a CalVet borrows money to get a house, they do not get a thing called a grant deed. They sign something called a land contract. The land contract is where CalVet essentially operates as the owner of the property. You pay CalVet, and after you've completely paid off this land contract, which is typically 25 to 30 years, then you are deeded the property. Okay, that's a land contract. The last one over to the right here is called government financing. This is where a lot of us in the beginning first get our financing programs. Uh, FHA, as Federal Housing Administration, has several different types of programs that are available to all people. In other words, there's no requirements where you have to be a vet or anything like that. That's any citizen can, can apply for this program. They have a number of different types of programs that are available uh, for um, you know, first-time buyers, existing, uh, existing people that want to move up. They do have limits on how much they're going to lend and what, uh, you know, what their uh, earning requirements are, you know, how much money you have to earn or, uh, to get to the program. Okay, VA, that means your veteran, Veterans Administration, it's a federal loan program. That's one, of the programs that a lot, that's one of the programs that a lot of people like myself use the first time that we get a house. You know, by us being in the service, one of the benefits that we get besides having our education help with the GI Bill is that we have the right to, use, to get what we call a VA loan. A VA loan typically can be almost next to nothing that we have to put down to buy our first house. Okay, so it's a very low down or no down payment loan concept is is that guess what when we go to buy our first house usually we are fairly young if we've been in the military we've been if you've ever been in the military you, I'm here to tell you you don't make a lot of money you don't have a lot of money and when you return from wherever the war is that you're at and you want to buy a house you need to have some assistance with that you haven't made enough money to be able to put anything away so the VA is a way to help you get your first house if you're a vet okay and then of course CalVet and by the way, there are lots and lots of other kinds of programs that would be available to people uh, besides these. Uh, there are a lot of special purpose financing programs for people that are, that are looking, buying their first house. As I mentioned before, there's one center here in Sacramento called the Home Loan Counseling Center that's on this first floor, the Sacramento Association of Realtors. It's a nonprofit-making organization. We have them come in as guest speakers at our internship program. And they're basically out there to help clients uh, or help people buy their first house. In some cases, it's just to help those people. In some cases, they're training programs that they would have a mandatory for you to qualify for that kind of financing. And those programs can differ. Uh, some of them might be because they're trying to target an area that needs to be turned around through some sort of grant money. They have programs that will help people with down payment. Uh, low interest rate loans, there's a lot of different programs like that. that. Typically, you'll hear the term layered financing with those. They're, in other words, the sources of money might be coming from several different locations. Okay. So anyway, after that, um, let me see, the next page. Um, um, you know, pretty much, I'll just show you right here really quick. The rest of these pages that are right here, down below here, are just talking about what I already talked about, who mortgage bankers were, savings banks, who they are, just a description of who they happen to be. Uh, they give you some more pages in here just talking about who, um, uh, 
Federal Housing Administration is or uh, Federal Housing Finance Board is. So this is just talking. This is their website right here, okay, what their mission is. And then on this page right here is just telling you what the priorities are of those different types of lenders. They're just saying, okay, here's the different types of lenders, a savings bank, a commercial bank, and a life insurance company, and this is the kinds of loans that they make. Savings banks typically will deal with things like single-family homes and condos or townhouses. They'll deal with things like apartment buildings, buying your apartment building, you know, like 5, 6, 10, 15, 20, 100 units. They'll deal with home improvement loans, money that you're going to borrow against your house in order to do things like put a new roof on, swimming pool, lawn, sprinkler system, whatever it happens to be. And they'll also deal with manufactured homes. And that term of manufactured homes, by the way, has gotten to be, it's not like it used to be. We used to think a mobile home. Manufactured homes now can fall under a lot of different categories because what's happened is a lot of builders have recognized that to a large extent it makes a lot more sense to build, do some of those buildings or some of the construction part in a controlled environment like a lumber yard. So that's why when you go to a construction site, you'll see those things that are trusses. They'll come on the back of a flatbed truck, and they'll lift into place with a crane because it's, they do that for two reasons. Number one is, is they can do it under a controlled environment so the wood doesn't twist and splinter and, and break. The second thing is because of the way they construct it at the time, they can actually build it with less lumber, okay, and there's less waste on the job site. I have seen houses, my house included, when I built mine, and my house is not a cheap house, where they build the walls, they build a lot of things off-site. And what's delivered to the site is the completed two-by-fours, the completed walls. They're lifted up off the truck and put on there, so therefore there's very little, if any, waste. Uh, so you have all the great issues. A lot of, uh, if you take a look at a lot of um, commercial projects, like, uh, for example, there's a hotel out in um, Rancho Cordova. I think it's the Sheridan that when you look at it and you say, how did they get all of those curves and turns that way? Well, all that stuff came and was lifted into place, okay? So they've even gotten down to where they built, will actually in some places build entire, the entire room and deliver it and just keep lifting them up and hooking them together because it's, more, it's easier to build them in a factory environment and then deliver them than it is to build them in pieces. It, it goes quicker. Anyway, so you'll see that. Uh, commercial banks commercial banks typically will do things like auto loans. They'll do conventional loans. They'll do government-backed FHA and VA loans. They do credit cards, construction loans. Construction loans are when you're getting ready to build a house. Uh, commercial banks will also do, um, they talk about business and auto lending, so they may be the people that you're going to go to to get a, a loan to open up a brand-new, I don't know, donut shop, coffee shop, whatever it happens to be. Life insurance companies, they're just telling you here they're big money lenders. They do shopping centers, hotels, industrial parks, FHA home loans through large mortgage companies, government-backed loans, okay? So in other words, they're looking for large, very large projects, okay? So they're just telling you what they do. And then the pages go on and on and on from there. The next thing they talk about in here that we need to be aware of is something called private mortgage insurance, PMI. The concept here is the fact that whenever you get ready to buy a property and you are going to be putting down, as I've mentioned before, less than 20%, less than 20%, then what's going to happen is, is that the lender is going to say, you know what, I'm taking a risk. I, the lender, I'm taking a risk. 
if you only put 5% down, you as the borrower don't have a lot at risk. If you lose your job, the chances are that you will turn around and just abandon the house and let me foreclose on it are pretty high. So what I would really like to have, I as a lender, is I would like to have some sort of guarantee, something that makes me feel comfortable in the event that that happens. Now under government programs, under FHA, we have an insurance program that ensures that, that, ensures that, that area that's at risk, that 20%. Under VA, we have something called the Guarantee Program. And under PMI, or private, meaning it's not a government organization, we have something called Private Mortgage Insurance. And that's insurance that ensures the lender that they're in okay shape for that am amount of equity where the people are putting a small amount of money as a down payment. So if I go in and put 10% down as a down payment, the lender is probably going to say to me, fine, we'll make the loan, but we want you to get us uh, private mortgage insurance. So in case of foreclosure, we're protected. That's what that is. Okay, so you'll read that. Um, let me see here now. Okay, private mortgage insurance. Okay, the next thing they talk about here is something called, um, okay, they talk about two different types of loans. They talk about a fixed rate loan and an adjustable rate loan. Fixed rate loan is simply the fact that it's, it's fixed. The interest rate does nev never changes. It stays the same for whatever period of time it is. They have fixed rate loans. Um, I've seen them for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, 40 years. Fixed rate. In interest rate does not go up. It stays the same. People that typically get into those kinds of loans are the kind that probably feel that they're going to live in the house for the rest of their life or for a long period of time. There are also people that do not want to lose sleep at night saying, oh my goodness, what happens? I just heard the Federal Reserve raise the interest rates. What's how, what effect is that going to have on my loan? I can't sleep at night. I'm worried. You know, I want to know what my payments are going to be no matter what. Fixed rate loan. Okay, An adjustable rate loan is, uh, is a different type of a thing. What that is, is that that's tied to essentially, usually, the short-term interest rates. And the concept is, is that the bank, the lender, doesn't have to look out for 30 years to try to guess where the interest rates are going. What the lender can do is they can turn around and say, you know what, I'll lend you the money, but every, if it's a, it's a for one year adjustable, it means at the end of one year, the lender will turn around and look at the interest rates and go, oh, they're okay, I'll leave it alone. Or they may turn around and say, hey, you know what, the interest rates went up, I'm going to raise the monthly payment up. So what that does is by them able, on the lender's side, for them being able to make the loans for essentially a short or period of time where they have the ability to raise the interest rates, it lowers their risk. It lowers the lender's risk. That's the concept behind it. Because remember, lenders are getting their money from where? They're getting them from depositors. Every time the interest rates go up, in order for the lender to continue to make loans, they have to pay their depositors a higher rate of interest. Okay? If they have a bunch of loans sitting out there that they have for, say, 5%, but they're having to pay 6% in order to attract lenders, they're losing money. So the adjustable rate mortgage allows them to make these adjustments as time goes by. And we'll talk about that in a second. This is very popular. That's the advantage to the lender. On the advantage to the borrower is the fact that we can get in usually with a lower monthly payment than we did in the beginning, a lower monthly payment. 
Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, am I okay now? Okay. No, you're not. Okay. Um, turn the power back on. Um, it's not off. You got bars, so your docking cable is kind of off. Okay. Okay. Well, I'll do that. I'll I'll just come back up here and and that's fine. This is what we call operator error. Okay. What I want to do is talk a little bit more about this, and we'll pick up on the next time. We were talking about the adjustable rate loans. What you really want to do about that is you really, and, and we need to write that down so I don't forget it. We're going to be stopping there on the adjustable rate loans, which is on page 300. But what you're going to want to do is you're going to be wanting to ask the lender for a lot of questions about these adjustable rate loans. And what we're going to be talking about the next time that we meet is we're going to be talking about the stuff that's on page 302, which is how the adjustable rate mortgages work, okay? Very, very, very important topic. How do they work? Because typically when you go to get a regular loan, fixed rate loan, they're going to say, here's the interest rate, here's the monthly payment, and here's the discount points. You know, it's pretty simple. In the case of an adjustable rate loan, like it shows on page 302, we're going to be talking about things like an index. An index has to do with how, how is, what is the lender going to use to figure out whether to raise the interest rates or not. We hear indexes all the time. We hear of things like, uh, we hear of things like um, the consumer price index, where every year what we do theoretically, at least, is we send somebody out with some money and a, and a shopping list and say, go out, you know, think about it almost, and this is not exactly the same, not, not the way it works, but uh, totally, but the idea is you give somebody a shopping list Give them a shopping basket. Give them a certain and give them a checkbook and say, "I want you to buy these same groceries that you bought last year." And when they come back, if they paid hundred dollars for those groceries, which was that that was the base year last year, and if now they get all done and when they're done at the register, they paid hundred and five dollars. That shows that how much we have those typical things have gone up. Well, we need to have an index. So we'll be talking about indexes. We'll be talking about that stuff that's on page three hundred two because those are things you need to know when you shop for the loan. Okay, with that, I'll see you back here the next time, uh, and we'll pick up on that point. Thank you very much.